Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to another week of Chasing Frets. I'm Jason Shadrick. And I'm Andy Ellis. And uh, this week, our special guest is Steve Kimmock. And yeah. we were kind of looking for somebody. Andy and I were talking about guests, and we wanted to interview somebody who maybe was kind of on the fringes of the Grateful Dead scene and stuff, and his name came up. And knowing his recordings, he I'd never interviewed him before. I don't think neither one of us have. And he just, even from his playing, seems like such an interesting guy, like the world's most interesting improviser. Yes, and and very, very deep into playing guitar. And as we'll hear, the notion of thinking about intonation in the context of a harmonic progression. And yeah. that I found, I'd never heard anybody talk about that. And I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> We're going to let him explain it. But it was new to me. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of his stuff, uh, a lot of his ideas and, and his impressions of improvisation, uh, even if he didn't quite disagree with my questions sometimes, <laughs> uh, was totally was totally cool and, and welcome. And we also uh, cover a bit of his early, just his early general history, uh, falling in love with the guitar, learning about improvisation and his travels from uh, how he kind of worked his way from Pennsylvania out to the, the right. west coast of the Bay Area, which is where uh, the work he did out there is probably where people most know him from with the Grateful Dead and and Phil Lesh and some other people. So uh, so dig into this episode uh, about kind of his life and lessons he's learned from improvisation, and he'll be back uh, the rest of the week for a couple more episodes. So let's go right now to our conversation with Steve Kimmock. All right, Steve, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week and being a guest on Chasing Frets, man. How are you? I, well, under the circumstances, I think I'm doing okay. You know, although these are admittedly trying times. Yeah, it looks like is this is this your home studio? I know people can't see it, but this looks like a pretty this is pretty nice I'm, place. I'm in I'm in my barn, which is ah. you know, more of a um, more yeah. of a music place, you know, for me than a studio because I'm old, right? So I think a studio has to have, you know. A two-track machine <laughs> next to the sixteen-track machine and a console and all that stuff. So what, what we what we have here is a you know a computer and an interface and a couple of little speakers and still my son works here more than I do, but it gets fantastic, amazing results. I don't even understand how it's possible. Yeah, but it's cool. mostly a place for my guitars to play and amps and, and I've got keyboards and stuff here and bass amps and you know so. A, I could bring a band in here and rehearse them or put them on the road, but that's what you're looking at the back wall of that. Well, the first topic we're going to hit today is it's a big one, but as we were kind of talking before, it's 
we can go so many different directions with this. And that's uh, the kind of art of improvisation. What some, maybe some lessons you've learned over the years being an, an improvising guitarist. And when Andy and I were talking about topics, I had this one question kind of popped to mind is that, and, and I think we all have different views on this is when you were first attracted to the guitar, when was impro- improvisation a thing right from the beginning or did you get into the guitar and then discover improvisation? Wow. Um, I, 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 improvisation isn't what got me into the guitar. I was a kid and the Beatles came on the radio. And so that got me into the guitar. Once I had picked it up, it, it you know, it was kind of like, oh, <laughs> I'm in my, it's my own personal sandbox, you know. And, and, and I was, I was, you know, kind of shocked to discover that when I was in that sandbox, people left me alone. They thought, oh, good, he's doing something constructive, you know. So mostly until I got an electric guitar <laughs> in the house and then it was like, turn that shit down. But, you know, uh, it was mostly, it, it was mostly cool. But, but it, you know, listening to the, listening to the Beatles and um, having a, a family on my mom's side, my, my, my aunt Dottie who's since passed away, was a, a, a real honest-to-goodness, you know, folky. Wow. Like sang and played with Pete Seeger and ran the Eastern Cooperative Recreational School and taught clog dancing and, you know, all the arts and craftsy stuff. And, and you know, it was a, sort of a fixture of the Philly folk scene and the folk festival down there. So, um, you know, it was folk and pop music that attracted me to the guitar. Then once I picked mm-hmm. it up, and started listening on my own, then I realized that that uh, all these guys that I liked appeared to me to be handling it in the same way I was enjoying it, which, which was just like, oh, I can play, I can have fun with this, I can, I can, you know, eventually get it to do my bidding or whatever. And who are some of those players? The early players. I mean, well, you know, besides the Beatles, once I started listening on my own, you know, it was. Um, I'll be 65 in a month or two. Okay. You know, so it was like whoever was, was, you know, kicking ass around Woodstock would have been fine with me. You know what I mean? Um, 10 years after our Mm. Santana black Sabbath, you know what I mean? It was like, it was not, um, it was not some really esoteric kind of, uh, um, childhood. I was, I was a kid growing up in, in, coal country steel country pennsylvania there was no entertainment industry there wasn't really much radio you know so it was like you heard a rate you heard a, a record at a, a friend's house or something you know and then off you off you went and then later on you know you then it's you forget about the records you listen at the friend's house i used to go to my friend uh uh it was danny frank's house and like listen to his brother's stereo when his brother wasn't home, you know, <laughs> trying to find his pot or something, you know. Um, and then his brother turned out to be later on. I'm like watching TV, and he was he was uh, on on uh, Next Generation Star Trek, Jonathan Frakes. You know what I mean? So it's like that is, is that that kind of stuff always confused me about trying to learn music. And I look back and go, I remembered all the wrong stuff. Well, I remember, uh, I'm a little older than you, Steve, a few years, and I remember discovering guitar briefly through classical and then, bam, into folk, you know, which got me right into steel string and having teachers that wore finger picks, you know, and were doing Mississippi John Hurt, you know, and that kind of thing. And 
as soon as the Yardbirds and the Kinks and the Who and the Animals arrived, you know, and the Rolling Stones sort of on the coattails of the Beatles, that was electric guitar. But there was this, this, this folk time right in between there, you know. And, and I think that a lot of American guitarists in our age bracket came through, you know, the song Silver Dagger and things like that, where we had that sense of structure and storytelling. Those, those folk songs, man, they were, they were in, meant to, I think, inform younger people. And Silver Dagger was a, a cautionary tale to young women. You know, keep that guy yeah. out of your bed who wants to come in there. I mean, um, I mean, my, my aunt, I think it was like when, when she realized that I had gotten a guitar when I was 12 or 13 or whatever, she sent me a songbook of Canadian fishermen's labor organizing songs. <laughs> It was like, it was like, it was like that level, you know, like folk music, communism. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I yeah, guess, no, yeah. I, I, I was, I still, you know, I mean, like, if I, if I had my, like, I have to have this stuff. I've got my picks, my finger picks and my capo. I still have them after yeah. all these years trying to learn to play like John Coltrane and stuff like that with my finger picks and my capo. <laughs> but yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's where that started. Yeah. For sure. But then, I mean, I mean, it wasn't soon after that. Now, dig. Now, this is like fam it's family related stuff. Um, and I've made this point before talking to people, and I think it's an important one about influences. Um, because the people that influenced me the most weren't those guys, right? I mean, as, as big an influence as Jimi Hendrix was, and he was huge, or Eric Clapton was a huge influence on me, Carlos Santana, blah, 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 blah. It was the cats that I played with or people in my family, like my Aunt Dottie and my cousin Kenny, Kenny Sifter. We still play together. Um, he was an honest-to-goodness Tulsa blues guitar player. And, you know, I had admired him and, you know, like, so got what he taught me. Because when I was just, like, still trying to, like, trying to figure out how to do the finger-picking thing and taking guitar lessons and stuff, um, he just went, I right, some Rolling Stone songs, you know, and it's a B.B. King lick and stuff like that, you know. And that's what really, that's what really kind of uh, busted me loose, you know. And then and then as, as, I, as I went, there's the cats that I was closest to that I played with. So my friend Bill Goodman, who's, I, I think, one of the best bottlenecks guitar players i just one of the cleanest and most elegant bottleneck players i've ever heard in my life just brilliant player he's living in germany now we still play together and, and uh whenever we can but you know i mean Tony Allman's a huge influence on me but he's, he's a bigger influence than bill goodman you know so it's like that so i can name stuff that we know and and you know we're all good with that um what do you call that you know the the um you know, we have common um, formative listening. Yeah, yeah, yes. With, with our instruments. Yeah. But it's the, it's the people that were closest to me. That's, that made yeah. Me. When did the idea of your, as your list, because you're listening to the Beatles and you're listening to 10 Years After in Santana. When was, did the thought cross your mind that, I'm guessing probably more so than Santana than the Beatles, that these guitarists were essentially making it up as they go along? Oh, you know, I I discovered that for myself, and I I can't give you the address where it happened. <laughs> I don't remember, and it wasn't even my guitar, but I was at some guy's house, and I 
I probably was too young to drive. It was 15 or 16. Um, but I was at some guy's house and under the stairs, somehow he had a little drum set and there was an amp and a guitar. And I knew a couple of, just a couple of things. Right. And he was hitting on the drums and I started going like this, you know, to making my little boxes and L's and triangles and stuff like that. <laughs> and we, we didn't know any songs. I didn't know a song. I didn't know, but I just heard the sound of it. And I went, Oh my God. I said, that's what I'm hearing these guys do. And they're going like this, you know, just that little sort of back and forthness of the, um, you know, the, the pentatonic scale on standard tuning, where it's just like this way, that way, this way, that way, you know, bouncing back yeah. and forth. And I heard that and I was like, wow, I get it, you know. And how old were you around this time? Um, I was I was probably just a little before I was 16, you know, because I didn't have an electric guitar yet. And I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't committed. I mean, that was one of the experiences uh, indelible I'll never forget it but that I mean that committed me I realized that it was possible and I was like oh just like the light bulb went off you know uh, you know such that a light bulb goes off in a 15 year old's head about you know music you know but I was like oh no I, I something connected and that was I was after it so that was before I was 16 by the time I was 16 I was like I know what I'm doing leave me alone that's and that's so interesting how you when you bring it back to like the people around you who were hands-on playing with you and same for me are are some of the even though their names nobody else would really know are some of the biggest influences we have because they're there in person sharing the music with you yeah and 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 it just it makes such an impression My, my my i remember my cousin kenny just after i was getting into the electric guitar um he was trying to help me out with guitars and amps. Right. And he said, got to get a Gibson. You got to get a Gibson guitar through a Fender. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I do, you know, and then I, I'd like start going to these gigs at this local, there was, there was an old mill that we called the old mill <laughs> down by the Monocacy Creek that me and my uncle John and Kenny helped like put back together, you know, into a, into a venue. So I'd see bands play down there. And sure enough, man, all the guys that I thought were any good, man, it was a Les Paul and a super, or you know, a 345 and a twin or, you know, an SG. There's a Marshall here and there and a Telecaster here and there, but the cats that were killing it, you know, it was an old Les Paul with the P nineties or something like that. And a tweed fender or whatever. And, um, you know, in the, in the, in the interim, you know, I spent many years at Mesa Boogie and, and at Two Rock doing all kinds of R&D and doing all kinds of listening and, um, you know, playing crash test dummy kind of guitar and amp stuff for all these manufacturers. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm still here with my, I got my, L, my L5 and my stock brown Fender Pro. There's basement white, no, no, what do you call it? Tremolux, you know, it's still a Gibson guitar and a Fender. It's like, like what lessons did you learn? You know? And I learned, that's one of the things I learned. I learned that the guys that were doing what I liked and when they were making it up, that they were using that stuff. And I had that, I knew that when I was 16 and it's taken me till I was 65 to go, Oh, I guess that was right. Like all this in between where I'm going, it's a high walk. <laughs> you know, I love my high walk. You know I, mean? I know Frank Goodman from the Mesa Boogie days too. And oh, wow. Okay, cool. So, so I, I've never met his brother, but when you, as I understand it, you moved to San Francisco 
to play with the Goodman brothers. Is that? No, I moved from Pennsylvania with the Goodmans for us all to have a band on the West Coast. Because we we didn't know what we were doing, but we thought the West Coast was cool. I just got, in fact, I just got a freaking tape, uh, a link to a tape of the Goodman brothers from 1977. And, and um, speaking of improvisation, some of it violates uh, the, the one, one of the, one of the rules on the Franz metronome, because he had a Franz metronome mm-hmm. back in the day. If you had the finger picks and a capo, you had the Franz metronome with, with the, with the dial on the front and wooden the, pyramid thing. Yeah. This, oh, that one. I still have one of these, this one, the electric yeah. one. Not the just the you know your sister who played the violin used the wood oh. one. Yeah, we're good, we're electric guitar players. We had that one. So there's a booklet that comes with it, and in the back it, it tells you like how to use the thing. And one of the one of the little things like number five or whatever was avoid immature rapidity, <laughs> which in in my in my haste to become accomplished, I apparently ignored. Because you should hear some of this crap from 77. Oh my <laughs> God, you can't make out a single note. It's just like, it's like all over the place. But the stuff that's not like that is, I think, I don't play better than that today. Wow. I, I was 22. I just don't. I make better decisions, you know, and I play more styles and more instruments. But just, you know, that, my, my very first hit about the guitar, which has sustained me all this time, was right. I heard it right. You mm. know, the stuff that I liked, I heard it right. I got it immediately. And ever since then, I've just been falling apart, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, man. And I heard this say, like, my, my uh, this is funny, because you, you, you play and you record your stuff. You know, you record the stuff and you listen. And unless I'm, like, doing something real specific. Like, I want to hear this speaker. And I'll put the speaker in the amplifier and we record the gig and I play. And then I go, I listen, I go, oh yeah, that works. Or I go, oh, that's bloody awful, isn't it? You know, speaker. But if I'm just listening to my own playing, um, if I listened too soon, I'm like, oh God, what's wrong with me? Why did I do that? Oh, I'm such an idiot. I used, well, I used to be able to play. Now I can't play at all. I've completely lost it. You know, what's wrong with me? Right. So I don't listen for a while. And then, so I listen to that same thing, you know, like a year later, two years later, same period. Hey, listen to this. And I listen to it. I go, Oh no, why can't I play like that anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And now I hear this stuff from when I was, I mean, I was just barely old enough to drink and I hear it and I go, wow, that's really good. What was I thinking, you know? Um, that brings up something that I want to expand on a little bit, is that a lot of your adult life has been musically in various groups and gigs has been recorded in some way or another. Yes. Um, and I heard Mike Gordon from Fish talk about this once, that there's this one gig they played uh, back in the late 80s, Fish did. And he has such fond memories of that gig that and of course, as you know, every every note Fish has almost ever played has been recorded and whatever and passed around. And same thing for the dead and on and on. Is there a gig that you have such a strong memory of that you actively do not want to go back and listen to it 
because there might be a chance it might not sound as good as you remember. Hmm. I did. I don't anymore because I heard the gig. Then somebody played it for oh. me later. Um, there actually two of them, and they were they were around they were around the same period. I did it. Speaking of Mike Gordon, I did a, I did a gig at the Warfield in San Francisco with uh, with Phil Lesh and and Trey and Paige and. Was that like April 99 when they did those gigs? Yeah, I forget. I forget. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember. There's probably a poster somewhere. But, um, I wasn't paying attention, but I played the gig. We played two or three, three nights, I think. And it was just, it was really wonderful. It was really fun. And I didn't know anything about fish. I didn't know those guys. I, I met him at the Grateful Dead studio for rehearsal. And uh, and we hit it off. We had a great time. And, and there's lots of uh, just mutual respect and love and admiration and, and Lots of show and tell, plenty of learning for, for, for me. It was great, but I never wanted to go back and listen to it because my impression from the stage was that it was really just cool. It was cool. It was a cool gig all the way through. And I didn't want to go back and go, Oh, why'd I do that? Yeah. And then somebody you know, made me listen to the thing. And I was like, what really is good. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, partly because, um, you know, those guys at that level, you know, the live recording thing at that point, the quality is just spectacular, you know. Um, but after the gig, I had been given the box of, you know, whatever they were. They weren't ADATs. They were something, some kind of little format tapes, you know, just like super high quality right off the board. And I was like, put them in a box. And I went, no, thank you. <laughs> I will never listen to this. I don't know what I want to know what a chump I was. Um, but it was fantastic. There, and then there was another gig around the same era I did with uh, at Yoshi's. It was just me and Bruce Hornsby. Oh. And it was just just one of the more frightening experiences I've, 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 I've had. Um, just because he's so fucking good. you know. And I didn't know what to think and then finally somebody went back and played me one of the tunes and it's one of the literally most beautiful things i ever heard and i was just so take this you know it's 99 percent bruce but my one percent i didn't you know i didn't defile the raga of, of that particular moment you know but other than that i pretty much am forced to stand by what i played no matter how high I was or how screwed up it is, it's just like, yeah, that got recorded too. You, somebody likes it. Maybe nobody does. The blessing, uh, you know, uh, from back in the day, maybe not so much anymore, but the blessing back in the day with the tapes that circulated um, was it meant something to be at the top of a tree that was, you know, disseminating a good recording. Right. And so it was kind of like self editing, like bad gigs didn't get out there, you know, because why would anybody bother making the tapes or putting the tree together or something? They just didn't do it. And when I was, when I was a teenager, for me, like tape trading was like Dave Matthews band and Steve Ray Vaughn. I remember trading VHS tapes and, and CDs and all that. But I, I always wish that we could have, today's recording fidelity but with that infrastructure therefore it kind of weeds the the cream really does rise to the top when it comes to the best stuff yeah I, I, there's there's a lot of, of um 
there's a lot of stuff that I just have difficulty listening to anymore. I mean, partly because of the, um, then, you know, part, partly, partly because of the content, but I think a lot of it's the, uh, just the production values. Um, I'll make, I'll make one more, uh, comment because this is a, a this is a long way around a barn to start about what did you learn about improvisation um but back in the 70s the production values back in the 70s were something very attractive to me all the music that was recorded then you know whether it was uh, joyce one of my favorite brazilian singers over in in, in paris or you know um you know, the, the, the early 70s Allman Brothers records, doesn't matter what it is, man. That was like, you know, before the, the, the multi-tracking thing took over to the point where bands didn't play live anymore, and before, right before the drum machines and before digital, but just like coming out of the 60s, there was just a period where the music and the, the production values were just really, really neat, really expansive, really good. And and this the gig that I'm talking about that I did with the Goodman Brothers back here in Pennsylvania, um, I was literally it was recorded in a freaking bar, but it still has that vibe. It's got that it's it's you know it's boys at seventies, and boys that immature on some level. And, uh, uh, other than that, it's fantastic. Um, but here I'll tell you something that I got told about improvisation. <laughs> um, you know, one of those old guy deals where the old guy tells you um, about playing melody, because this is big in my plan. I was told early on, maybe in my, you know, in my early twenties, as I was trying to learn to play jazz, because I really wanted to learn to play jazz. And it turns out I just don't have the aptitude for it. Um, but, uh, or the discipline or whatever. But in terms of melody playing, that when you're playing a ballad and you're playing the melody, that you're supposed to, play the note at the last possible moment and hold it for as long as you possibly can. And if you played every note like that, you know, like nothing rushed, just hold on to it. Don't rush it, hold on to it. That then the melody would start to sing. And, uh, you know, so I did that and, 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 and that worked. I was also told back in the day, kind of by that same uh, crowd, um, not to put vibrato on blue notes. <laughs> it was like, it wouldn't, wouldn't be a blue note huh. if it had vibrato on it. And, and I was always like, I mean, cause I was 20 something, right? They're like, I don't even know what that means, but okay. You know? So I, I, I had to go through a period of trying to figure out should my notes wobble or not, you know, or what does it mean for your notes to wobble? Um, and uh, I, you know, I mean, it's a part of my thing now. Um, are, 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 you know, one of the one of the, the 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 bits that actively engages me when I'm improvising is what notes are going to wobble <laughs> and how much and how can I get a note just to land in a cut and just stick right there, you know, and be right in the harmony and be in the overtone series of the, you know, the, 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 the notes it's associated with or, or at what point is um, just jitter, just the thing moving around um, responsible for some emotional content 
it doesn't matter if it's in tune or even what note it's in. It's just simply sobbing. The note's just shaking kind of thing, you know. Um, so, so in terms of the actual execution on the guitar and the improvisation, and that's something that's always like really close to the top of my mind. It's like, you know, am I, am I being compositional here? Or am I being guitaristic? Or is this supposed to be emotional? Am I doing something specific with the intonation? Am I in a place in the, in the phrase or on the, the instrument where, um, What was it? It may have been Schoenberg who said music was the musical the musical intonation of a cadenced phrase, which is also something I didn't understand exactly when I read it. But um, I think I finally figured it out what a cadenced phrase was. It's a f f phrase that's just not static. It just it, you know it goes somewhere. It, it illuminates some motion in the music in terms of the functional harmony of the thing. And musical intonation in cadence phrase means you're playing that pitch. Say you're in the key of E, right? And I'm going to play the note A, and it's a five chord. That's a different A for me than if it was the four chord. It's different by almost a quarter tone. You know what I mean? So for me, if I'm going to play and I want the phrase to sound like one to five, I have to play that note that way. You know? And when I do, it's also a blue note. It's the seventh partial of the of the um, you know of the of the fifth, and so when I hit that note, man, I jam it down thirty three cents, and I leave it there, and then I hear that, and that makes sense, right? Um, but see, like here, 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 here I am in a, a description of improvisation where I'm rewarding myself for following my own rules, right? And I'm 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 feeling rewarded for having my own theory. But I think, at, I think at some point, if you're doing this, if you're improvising, um, and you're improvising, you know, kind of with the same tools that I am, because in my growing up in it, it's like, it's like about jazz, right? You know, and so you had to like learn all this jazz stuff, and you had to learn the names and the notes, and you had to like, it's just like a certain stuff, certain picking, certain scales. You know, um, sort of a prerequisite to having an uh, improviser's vocabulary at all, which I push back on a little bit, um, but not that much. But I think uh, anybody beyond sort of an intermediate stage with the playing is going to have their own ideas about how thing how things work, and will go for something that they believe, and you know, like in, it's in like in the belief of it that yeah. makes it stick. You know, if I feel it, and if I can, if I can get it so that I feel it strongly enough, there's a good chance that you know that you're going to feel it too. Particularly where it comes to like stuff about, uh, you know, pitch specificity and and uh, intonation, which turned out to be what I enjoyed most about listening to that. You know, the second generation electric blues guys, you know, and then the English guys, because everybody had their own touch i mean you could tell you know eric clapton you know you know what you sound like dwayne allman you know what those guys sound roy buchanan you know peter green they all played those notes too. um oh yeah uh bloomfield good you know or garcia i've heard garcia play some stuff that's just a 
astoundingly in tune. As much as people give him crap about being out of tune, when 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 he when he was hitting, you know, I've never heard better. To wrap up here, Steve, uh, I I'm so interested in all your views on improvisation you give me. But if you could point to who are maybe two or three of the most pure improvisers you've either played with or listened to. And maybe there's some names you've already mentioned, but when you think of pure improvisation, as you you hear somebody and you feel like the music is literally like every note they play, they've never played before. Who kind of hits that mark for you? Oh, um, well, I'm not entirely, I, I'm sorry. I don't entirely agree with the premise only because I know how many reps go into being able to execute something at the level that it might sound fresh, you know, but I, I mean, I'll tell, I'll tell you, um, like the really, 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 really guys that are just flogging it every day to try and get better when they really get to a certain point, that stuff is unbelievably fresh. I had right in this same room that I'm sitting in, I had for a, a, a week and a little more uh, a great Hindustani uh, slide guitarist, uh, Devishish Bhattacharya, came to stay with me for a while and, and, and play. And we had a lovely time. And he is accomplished beyond all imagine. I can't, I just literally can't believe it. I, just, I would just like, I'd be like an inch from his guitar going, <laughs> what? You know, you can't believe how good it is. Um, but him, you know, like that kind of thing. What what the the the, uh, uh, the discipline that informed his channeling of of his music makes it all sound to me like just the most wonderful, most wonderful thing. Um, Dwayne Alden and Dickie Betts both back in the day sounded like it was really just flowing mm-hmm. out of them, you know, and like that he didn't know where he was and didn't know where he was going. But boy, was he going to nail it and nail it and nail it, just like in each, you know, hitting the note. Those guys were hitting the note back then. And uh, probably probably still (laughs) somewhere. Um, But yeah, yeah. Um, And again, I think think, uh, Garcia, as a a pure improviser, had more interesting moments and more interesting spaces than... um, than anybody I know that was playing electric guitar, you know. Um, there's, you know, but that's not, um, I don't know. My, it, it's, I love the guitar and I, and I love playing electric, electric guitar and, and doing what I do in the style that I do and, and, and so forth. But I, I, I don't, I don't feel that any of it is, you know, like, superior to so many other kinds of music most of my listening these days is is like i'm either listening to you know debussy <laughs> or howland wolf or something you know, just, so it's so like yeah, yeah. everywhere you know that, that 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 particular um aspect like you know who is playing uh in in such a free way that it's just coming straight from the source Contemporarily, maybe somebody, or more contemporarily, somebody like Derek Trucks, you know, because I've been around him a bunch, you know, on the on the road either with the all of it. I mean, I've heard that guy play night after night, 
where the vocabulary and the creativity just like never stop. Just it's just not repeating themselves. It's always the same, never the same way. Just you know, really good. Who do you think? Oh, uh, Derek would definitely be up there for me, a hundred percent. I think also Chris Steely is another guy that comes to mind. Oh yeah, okay. The mandolin player. Um, I played with him too. Good dude. Uh, as far as more modern, uh, I mean, Jim Hall was like that for me, and and Pat Martino too. I mean, when you hear Pat Martino solo on Impressions, if you're going there, then um, I gotta say Lenny Bro. Oh yeah. You know, what I mean? I'm like, I'm like, I'm kind of talking from my own corner, know. you know, but oh my God, Lenny, bro. And I, I'm a huge Pat Martino fan, by the way, too. And he took a lesson with Lenny, I believe, right? Pardon? Yes. Yes. Uh, Jason said, I took a lesson with Lenny. Oh, no. I, I, I happened to live in Nashville. Uh, the first time was in 79 to 85. And Lenny happened to live here in Nashville as well. And uh, Chet Atkins and a, and a wonderful guitarist named John Knowles right. uh, were kind of taking care of Lenny, okay. making things work for Lenny, who we all know was a very fragile person, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have a tape, a cassette tape of sitting in his apartment, you know, with his, his wife at the time yelling at him, uh, back room. Uh, but you know, so Lenny is showing me, you know, his, his harp harmonic technique and, but, but I'd go see him play locally in clubs in Nashville, if you can believe it. I mean, in, in restaurants, restaurant bar clubs. Whoa. Lenny bro. Uh, what was it? I, you know, actually I, I got the t- tape so long ago, you know, it's like somebody gave me the tape, you know, it's the tape's like here. Yeah. This, right? And it just said, I wanted to say on it, the cassette tape just said, Live at Shelly's Band Hole, Lenny Bro. Mm. And That's All was on there. And his recording of That's All, you know, where he's scatting along with his voice and everything like that, I, I've been listening to that for 30 years. And every time I listen to it, it's, it's fresh. Every time I listen to it, I just can't believe what I'm hearing. You know, um, his music makes me feel like at every moment he has infinitely many degrees of freedom, just absolutely anywhere with the tempo or the tone, the phrasing, the dynamic, everything. It's just like, it could be anything. It's just so beautiful. What he does. I mean, obviously a huge Lenny Bro fan um, as well. So, Well, thank you so much, Steve, for uh, going along and deep with us uh, all about improvisation and a little bit of of, uh, your history. Steve's going to be back with us uh, the rest of this week to talk about uh, some other super nerdy topics. So uh, until then, uh, we'll see you guys later this week.